Welcome back, everybody. It is time for lecture number five. And today we're going to talk about attachment and entry, how viruses attach to cells, virus particles, and how they get inside. And why do they have to do that? We all know the answer because they are obligate intracellular parasites. They cannot reproduce unless they get into a cell, but they're too big just to diffuse across the cell membrane. So they um, need to be taken up by active mechanisms, and that's going to be uh, what we're talking about today. And here's an illustration in, the, in a reproduction cycle. This happens to be SV40. It's attaching to receptors, and it's taken into the cell. And SV40 DNA needs to get into the nucleus. Now, every, viruses are all different. According to family, um, they, they either get in the cytoplasm or the nucleus. Now, how does this work? So virus particles are present in huge numbers, as you know. It's one of their features, as we talked about the first session. And they just bump into cells. So, you know, they're floating around in the air in droplets that someone has just expelled. And you inhale them, they go in your nose, and they bump around until they hit a cell. Same thing with viruses you ingest, tra sexually transmitted viruses. They just bump into random cells, and they can adhere weakly by electrostatics, but that's not enough to get them inside the cell. Just sticking to a cell is not enough to get them in. There's no specificity. If they happen to hit the right cell, and the right meaning has a receptor for that particular virus, uh, then the virus particle will attach to the receptor. And sometimes it's more than one receptor protein. And then the next step is that the genome gets inside of the cell. And in some cases, as you'll see, the genome enters right at the plasma membrane. Sometimes the whole particle is taken up and it gets out from within the cell. But the, the key here is that there is specificity and if, let's say, the virus is somewhere and it's bumping into cells without receptors, it will never reproduce. So some human viruses get into animals. There's no receptors. Nothing happens. The first le lecture, remember, all the viruses in coleslaw that we ingest, they just pass through us because those viruses are bumping around in our intestines onto cells, but they're not finding any receptors. So they can't get in our cells and they cannot... Um, reproduce. So if someone asked for step three, does this include any proteins that may be present? Yeah. <laughs> you know, for those negative strand viruses, they have to bring in RNA polymerase and other proteins as well. So it's not just the genome. So that's a good point. Now, cellular receptors for viruses, that's the big topic for today. That's what we call them, cellular receptors for viruses. They're needed for all viruses except those of fungi and plants, which is a lot of viruses. Fungi, many of their viruses do not have extracellular phases. Um, actually, actually, they do not have any extracellular phases. Fungal viruses stay inside the cell. They reproduce, and when the cell divides, they go to the new cells. And that's how they work. And some of them actually have capsids, but many of them are just naked nucleic acid because they've evolved to lose it. They don't need it because the capsid is something you need to protect you in the environment, of course. And plants also, there, there are no receptors. How do plant viruses get into cells? Because plant viruses do get outside of their cells. Well, 
They can be introduced by insects or by worms. Worms, nematodes, often feed on plants and they can inject viruses. Or farmers, you know, farmers get them on their boots and they, they walk in a field and they wipe them on the plants accidentally and they can get in that way. And the farmer can get on his, his or her truck and drive to the next farm and bring viruses from their farm to the other one. Happens all the time. In um, There's a really big plant uh, section up at Cornell University in uh, Ithaca. And, and there's a virologist there. His job is to make potato seedlings for the state that are free of viruses <laughs> because they get infected. Eventually, they're all infected. So he makes new ones and he distributes them to the farmers and they plant them for a few seasons and eventually they get infected again. But I digress. Cellular receptors for viruses is a relatively new research area. As of 1985, we only knew one receptor, which was for influenza virus, which is illustrated here. Sialic acid is a sugar that's always attached to a uh, protein. I shouldn't say always because sometimes it's soluble, but on membranes, it's attached to proteins. And so the uh, HA, the hemagglutinin of influenza virus attaches to it. We'll talk about this in some detail today. But after that, there was an explosion in the discovery of receptors for viruses. And this is because of enabling technologies that made it possible, which weren't available before 1985. For example, recombinant DNA, the ability to clone genes, let us say, well, if we put this gene in, on a plasmid and put it in a cell, will it make a receptor that the virus can bind to? Monoclonal antibodies, another big one. As you know, when uh, mammals and other organisms are infected uh, with viruses, they make antibodies. And we learned how to make, and antibodies, of course, we recognize epitopes, which are short amino acid sequences, 12 or 15 amino acids. And we learned how to make monoclonals against one epitope. Monoclonals are an antibody against one epitope, as opposed to taking serum from your blood and getting a mixture of specificities. And that helped a lot because we could make monoclonals against specific receptors. Flow cytometry used a lot in immunology, the ability to put single cells through a thin capillary in a machine and sort them. You just sort them one by one, or we could sort them according to what's on their surface uh, using uh, antibodies that stain them. And then there's a laser that shines through and it sorts them by their color. Nucleotide sequencing, of course, is a big part of it. So we know the gene that we have. And then more recently, uh, ways to silence or disrupt genes. So if you have a gene, uh, you think it's encoding a virus receptor, a great experiment to do is to silence it with siRNA. You make 21 nucleotide single-stranded RNAs. You put them in cells and you make them so they're complementary to the message that you want to silence. And then the cell has a machinery to... Uh, degrade the target mRNA, small interfering RNA. And then CRISPR-Cas, of course, the big one, uh, for which you can use, again, um, specific sequences uh, to target genes and have the cell system degrade them. Now, CRISPR-Cas came from archaea and bacteria, so we don't have CRISPR-Cas, but you know, Doudna and Charpentier figured out how to put it in mammalian cells and utilize it for gene editing. So we can use it to disrupt genes. We can make an RNA 
uh, a guide RNA like this one, complementary to whatever gene you want to disrupt, you put it in cells along with Cas9, the endonuclease, and the Cas9 will, will chop up the DNA. And then it will get repaired by the cell and boom, you have a deletion in your gene. So all these uh, technologies allow us to identify many virus receptors. And when you do use those, there are certain criteria that are important to say this is or is not a receptor. And the more of these you do, I'm going to be a little cynical here. The more of these you do, the higher profile journal you can get your work published in. All right. And this whole idea of profile, high luxury journals, you know, this is a an artificial construct thought up by the journals to, to make money. But that's unfortunately the sad fact. So first, if you have what you think is a receptor protein, show that it binds your virus, part one. And that's great, but it's not enough because proteins can bind viruses and not be their receptor. Uh, if you have an antibody to the receptor, show that it blocks infection of cells. That's really good. And if you use a monoclonal, that's against one epitope on one protein. A really good one is show that the gene encoding the receptor confers susceptibility to infection. So if you're lucky enough to have say, a cell line that doesn't have the receptor gene in it, so they're not susceptible to infection. You can put the gene in, and you can ask if they become susceptible. Now, the, the caveat there is sometimes you, you need more than one receptor, and that makes it a little harder. You may have one of the two receptors, but you may be missing the other, and if you put just one in, it's not going to give you susceptibility. And then finally, you can disrupt the receptor gene and show that the cells become resistant. So I would say, you know, I, I, I like parts two and three, in my opinion, that's good. Everything else is gravy, in my opinion, but many people have all of them in, in a paper. Now, these technologies were used in January of 2020 to identify the cell receptor for SARS-CoV-2. We were I think we had just done this lecture last year, and the next week, the preprint came out showing this. So I want to tell you this experiment because it fits in perfectly into the topic of this lecture. So what they did is they had – well, first of all, this was really facilitated by, by the fact that we knew that SARS-1 used ACE2 as a receptor, right? So they didn't have to start from scratch. So they said, okay, this is SARS-CoV-2. Probably it uses ACE2. So what they did is they got a plasmid encoding ACE2 and um, they took HeLa cells, which do not make it, and they introduced plasmid DNA encoding ACE2 gene, which they had in the lab because they worked on SARS-1. And many people work on ACE2 anyway. So then you make HeLa cells that produce ACE2. So now you see ACE2 is on the surface and you have to make sure that your cells are making it. So right here are some immunofluorescence experiments to address this. So, and then you can take these cells and infect them with SARS-CoV-2 and ask, does the virus, are they susceptible to infection? So here we have uh, four panels, top HeLa cells with ACE2, human ACE2, HACE2 is human. We stain with DAPI, which just stains the nucleus so we can see that we have cells there. And then we <clears throat> stain with an, with, uh, an antibody to um, ACE2. And it's, it's labeled with FITSI, which fluoresces green in UV light. So you can see your cells are making ACE2. Some of them, not all of them, obviously. 
Uh, and then they infected these cells with SARS-CoV-2 and they stained the cells with an antibody to the viral nuclear protein, which is that protein that binds the RNA, right? And this one is linked, this antibody is linked to a dye that will fluoresce red under UV light. And so you can see uh, some of these cells are infected. And then you can do a merge of the green uh, and the red and say, so green plus red should give you yellow. And you can say, oh, there are yellow cells, which means they, they have ACE2 and they're infected. So this showed that uh, the receptor was uh, ACE2. Now, what's the control for this? HeLa cells without ACE2 all the way down here, right? No ACE2 by staining, no infection. Beautiful. Then they use bat ACE2. It's another extension of this, and bat ACE2 confers susceptibility to infection. That's very interesting, and this virus came from a bat, so this makes sense, of course. But then they use mouse ACE2, no infection when you put mouse ACE2 in HeLa cells. That's very interesting. Well, why, you may say, well, evolutionarily, it's interesting. But more importantly, we use mice in the lab to study virus infections. And this would say, can't use mice. But we'll talk about ways we get around that later on when we talk about uh, animal models for infection. So that's, the, that's how you identify a receptor. This was done way back in uh, January last year. Since 1985, we've identified lots and lots of receptors for many different viruses. And just a handful of them are shown here. And these are all plasma membrane receptors. Here's, here's a schematic at the top of the plasma membrane of a mammalian cell. You know, it's a lipid bilayer, right, with phospholipids. And embedded in it are proteins of various sorts. You have integral membrane proteins where there's a part of the protein outside the cell. Here's the interior of the cell here, cytoplasm. You have a transmembrane segment and a cytosolic segment. And sometimes these are multimeric. This is a trimer. Sometimes um, these proteins are glycosylated quite often, actually. And these yellow balls are, are sugars, chains of sugars attached or carbohydrate. And, and sometimes uh, these proteins are actually not transmembrane protein, but they're lipid anchored. So here in the red is an example of that. Uh, the, the protein doesn't actually cross the, the bilayer, but rather is anchored into it by a lipid, which itself, of course, is covalently attached to the protein. And down here on the bottom are some known virus receptors. Um, you know, all different kinds of proteins. We have here on the left, uh, heparin, sulfate, proteoglycan, sialic acid for influenza virus. And sialic acid is the blue sphere, as you can see in the code here. And these are other sugars that are part of this uh, glycoprotein. And sialic acid is always the last sugar on these chains, and, and the influenza virus binds to that. SV40 actually binds a ganglioside, uh, which is a, a glycosylated lipid. And then we have other proteinaceous receptors for poliovirus, for example. Uh, these, these circles are immunoglobulin-like domains. If, you, if I showed you a picture of an antibody, it would have a similar protein domain. And many other proteins have that. So that turns out to be a protein we call CD155. Herpes virus 8, foot and mouth disease is a, is a, is a, a dimer, an integrin. HIV-1 actually requires two membrane proteins for entry, CD4, and, and a second, a multipass protein, a chemokine receptor, either R5 or R4. And then uh, adenovirus also has 
two different receptors. And we'll explore some of these today as to how they work. Now, I, I want to emphasize, these proteins are not here to let viruses in, okay? Please understand that early on. They, they're in the cell because they do other things in the cell. Every one of these proteins does something in the cell. The virus simply is able to bind to it. And different viruses, as you can see here, can bind to different receptors. Uh, in fact, different viruses, meaning different viruses, even from different families, can bind the same receptor. So here, adenovirus, diagram there, and Coxsackie virus B3, uh, a smallish icosahedral virus related to poliovirus, now they can both bind the same receptor on a cell. By the way, this is what Coxsackie virus was named after. Uh, any of you live upstate, you know there's a town called Coxsackie, New York. And one, once I was driving by and I took this picture with hold up my camera. I always wanted it for teaching. <laughs> and finally, I drove up there one day and took this a number of years ago. Coxsackie virus. They had an outbreak of polio-like paralysis in 1947 in the town. They thought it was polio. When they isolated virus, it wasn't. So they named it Coxsackie virus. Nowadays, people don't like to name viruses after towns. They think it gives a bad rap to your town. And we'll tell some stories about that later. But I guess people in Coxsackie didn't care. In 1947, you didn't have an, you didn't have a word anyway. So someone asked, is ACE2 what people actually mean by spike? No, ACE2 is the receptor. Spike is the viral part. And we will, I'll show you pictures of that. It'll become clear. And anyway, there's a herpes virus of pigs, which is called pseudo-rabies virus. It's a kind of a confusing, confusing name, right? It's not rabies. So it's pseudo-rabies. It has nothing to do with rabies virus, but uh, binds the same receptor as human polio virus. Okay, so different viruses combine the same receptor. Sometimes viruses of the same family bind different receptors. So there are a number of rhinoviruses, over 150 different kinds, and they bind three different receptors. There are many retroviruses. There's something like 16 or more different receptors for retroviruses. And sometimes one virus can bind multiple. So here's herpes simplex virus type 1, which has many different glycoproteins in its envelope, and it can interact with a number of different receptors, as you can see here. So it's not just one virus, one receptor. There are variations on the theme. So let's talk first about how virus particles uh, attach to cell receptors. And I want to use uh, some different examples. Here we have two uh, icosahedral plus RNA stranded RNA viruses, poliovirus and rhinovirus. These are both members of the picornavirus family. And I've worked on these in my lab my whole career. And in fact, the receptor for poliovirus, which is shown here, was discovered in my lab in the early 90s by one of my graduate students, Kathy Mendelson, who's a professor at Columbia now. And uh, this gray uh, protein is the receptor for poliovirus. And it is, uh, it's actually, well, that's what I have on my phone, actually. So this is the same picture that I'm showing you, except I got my vaccine sticker on top of it because I think that's really cool. All right, so that's the picture that's kind of my logo for TWIV. It is poliovirus, which is the blue and, and red and yellow particle bound to soluble receptor, which we which we made in, in my lab, purified it and added it to the virus, and it sticks to it. There's no transmembrane part. And then we worked with a collaborator to solve the structure by cryo-EM, and we saw that 
how many receptors do you think are bound to the particle? That's a good question. Um, so if someone knows, type it in the chat. Anyway, this is saturated with receptors, and uh, you can see that they're attached to the particle. And here's a fivefold axis, and they're one, two, three, four, five around each fivefold axis. So, uh, what we learned is that the receptor fits into a little groove on the surface of the particle. So, here's the receptor CD155. Domains one, two, and three. And domain one is sticking into this little groove around the fivefold axis. Now, rhinovirus, in contrast, um, is um, its receptor is also shown here in gray. This happens to be LDL, low-density lipoprotein receptor. And uh, it, it rhinovirus has this little groove around the fivefold axis, but the receptor doesn't bind there. It, it sits on the top of this plateau. So if you look at this schematic, there's a, a plateau. It's kind of flat. And the receptor is um, sitting on top, as you can see in gray here. Okay, so some particles that are pure protein like these can just sit down onto the receptors. Now it's not forty-three to forty-four, dude. It's the whole protein, the whole particle. <laughs> not dude. Maybe it's a lady too. Um, think of icosahedral symmetry. There's there's five around each fivefold axis, right? How many twelve? Uh, how many fivefold axes? are there in a particle? You got to know that because it might be on the exam. Anyway, you have to assume also that this is saturated and we do cryo-EM, so we, we rotate it and we can see that it in fact is. Um, anyway, so that's how these combine. Now, another good example of this is adenovirus where you know we have an icosahedral particle with... Um, a fiber at each fivefold axis, shown in green here. And actually, it's the fiber, the very end, which is called the knob, that binds the receptor. And this virus has two receptors. It has one for the fiber. So the fiber knob attaches to a protein called CAR, C-A-R, which actually stands for Coxsackie adenovirus receptor because it can be bound by other virus. And the knob of uh, the fiber is a trimer, fits right down onto this these these three copies of car and then uh, adenovirus also binds another uh, receptor which we'll encounter later today all right so we have a couple of questions for viruses with multiple receptors is pathogenesis dependent on which receptor it binds to or is it just random binding so if, if it's so one virus so the herpes viruses uh, have multiple receptors and there's no indication that it determines pathogenesis. And there's not really uh, any other. So sometimes you need two viruses, like HIV needs two receptors, and it needs both to infect cells, so you can't have one or the other. And then someone asks, is there a threshold of how many receptors a viral particle needs to bind? So this is a good question. We, we think you need very few receptors to actually get into a cell. And, you know, some people, some work has suggested a few, two or three. For poliovirus, actually, let me go back. We think you might need five, you know, one, two, three, four, five, around one fivefold axis. And when we talk about encoding, we'll get back to that later. Now, influenza virus is a different kind of virus because it has a membrane. So how do membrane viruses attach to cells? We talked about pure protein viruses. Here, influenza virus, of course, has a membrane. And... I've introduced previously the, the glycoprotein spikes that are embedded in that membrane. And let's uh, 
go into more detail. There are two kinds, the hemagglutinin, HA, and the neuraminidase, NA. And the hemagglutinin, of course, is, re is responsible for hemagglutination, for the ability of this, virus, of this virus to bind red blood cells. And the receptor for this virus uh, is sialic acid. So uh, let's take the hemagglutinin and look at its three-dimensional structure, which was solved many years ago by X-ray crystallography. It's a trimer, of course, and here's a monomer. And at the bottom here, it's attached to the viral membrane. And at the top is a globular domain. And that's where sialic acid, which is the receptor, binds. And this on the right here is a top view looking down on the HA. And we're looking at a co-crystal of sialic acid with HA. So they solve the structure of sialic acid plus HA protein. And here's sialic acid in green. So it's a, it's a sugar. It has a ring structure on it, a six-carbon ring. And you can see it's making interactions, the red dots, with surrounding amino acids. So this fits in with high affinity into this pocket at the top of the HA, and that's how the virus binds to cells. Now, a little more detail on sialic acid and influenza viruses. So here is sialic acid, six-carbon ring, and then some other structures, chemical structures, uh, coming off of it. And it's always the first sugar in a chain. So here's a typical um, glycoprotein. And this can be any protein that the sialic acid is attached to. Uh, so it doesn't matter. Influenza virus is not discriminating. And then there's chains of sugars. And sialic acid are the yellow spheres. They're always the last sugar to which then uh, influenza virus binds. So here's sialic acid here. And the top shows it linked to the, the second sugar can be multiple kinds of sugars. Here's galactose, <clears throat> but it could be other things, other sugars as well. But the key here is that the sialic acid is linked to galactose with an alpha-2-3 linkage. And all that means is that the two carbon of this ring is linked to the three carbon of the, of the galactose with an oxygen in between. That's called alpha-2-3 linkage. And why do you care? Why do we care? Well, it turns out that uh, alpha-2-3 sialic acids are preferentially bound by avian influenza viruses. These viruses infect all kinds of birds, as I told you, I think, before. And the ones that infect birds prefer alpha-2-3. And in fact, that's what birds have uh, throughout their respiratory and gastrointestinal tract. Humans, on the other hand, uh, on, on our upper tract, in our nose and uh, nasopharynx, we don't have alpha-2-3, we have alpha-2-6, which is down here. And that's simply sialic acid linked to the second sugar uh, by an alpha-2-6 linkage. So a human influenza virus strains preferentially bind alpha-2-6. Now, why is this important? Well, every time there's a new human influenza virus, it typically comes from birds. And so one of the main changes has to be a change in the receptor. It has, that virus now has to be able to bind human alpha-2-6, and we will talk about that later. So the uh, other thing I want to mention here, there are three different kinds of influenza viruses, and we'll hear more about this uh, subsequently, but A, B, and C, and A, B, and C uh, bind a slightly different kind of, of sialic acid from um, influenza C viruses. So the, the ones shown here are N-acetyl neuraminic acid, now, because there's an acetyl group here, C double bond O, CH3, right? That's on the amine, the amine, the, the nitrogen. So 
acetylnuraminic acid. And the influenza C viruses bind uh, nine acetylnuraminic acid. All right, another virus, the envelope virus uh, to look at, uh, this HIV, human immunodeficiency virus type one. This is a retrovirus, and we will have, as I said, more lectures on retroviruses and HIV. It's an envelope virus with a plus-stranded RNA. This goes through a DNA intermediate. And in the envelope, of course, there's a spike. It's a trimer of a single protein, uh, which can be called uh, SUTM or GP120. And uh, the SU is the surface part. It's the part that's outside the cell. It's shown here as a trimer in the structure. And the TM is the transmembrane part. You, you may say, why are there so few here? And it's actually what we see on these particles. Some particles have very dense spikes, like influenza virus, and HIV has very few. In fact, if you look at the thumbnail for last week's, uh, Monday's lecture, it's the HIV structure, which is, you know, on the cover of volume one of the book, and there are very few glycoproteins. That's the way it is, actually. And it makes, makes it hard for antibodies to clamp them together to neutralize them. Anyway, HIV uh, binds a, two receptors. One shown here is CD4. It's a cell protein found on CD4-positive T cells. And you can see the structure of the SU part, again, which is the part of the glycoprotein outside the virus particle bound to CD4. And there's a little cavity here. SU is sitting on top of CD4. And the... Um, the, the, the CD4 has a little protrusion that sticks into SU, and there's actually a phenylalanine. You can see the side chain there that's incredibly important for uh, for binding. If you take out that phenylalanine, CD4 won't bind HIV anymore. Now, CD4 is a, is a immunoglobulin-like protein. We can see it back here in this uh, struct, this, this figure. One, two, three, four immunoglobulin-like domains. And you can see poliovirus is a three immunoglobulin-like domain protein. And guess what? This is really cool. We did this in our lab a long time ago. If you make a structure of, of CD155, the polio receptor bound to poliovirus, um, you see there's, there's a, there's a um, phenylalanine in there that's really important for binding also. Even though they're completely different viruses, one is a pure protein and this one's a glycoprotein. That phenylalanine is important. All right, so now, of course, we have to talk about SARS-CoV-2 attachment, which was not in the lecture last year, but it's amazing what's been done in the in this subsequent year. So the virus particle enveloped with a spike, which is a trimer of the spike protein. It binds to receptors. And here are some uh, receptors for human coronaviruses. And there are one, two, three... Uh, of them with funny names. These are the common cold coronaviruses that we've known for many years. They called mild upper tract infections, common colds. And then we have the original SARS-CoV, MERS-CoV, and uh, SARS-CoV-2. And we'll explore these more. Like you may not know what MERS-CoV is. We'll explore it later. And these are the receptors that they use. So human aminopeptidase N, cell surface protein, for 229E. ACE2 is a receptor for NL63, SARS-1 and SARS-2. And then we have uh, N9O-acetylnuraminic acid. That's the same one as influenza C. And then uh, dipeptidyl peptidase 4. 
And so let's explore SARS-CoV-2 attachment. Here's the structure of a monomer of the spike protein. This, this, as I said last time, this was solved within a month of isolation of the virus by cryo-EM. And the um, domain structure is shown on top, colored, color coordinated. And so we have, you know, at the bottom is the part that sticks into the particle. And then the top has the receptor binding domain. So in green here is the receptor binding domain of spike called RBD. And that's the part that binds ACE2. And in fact, in this structure on the right, which I just whipped up yesterday um, using the coordinates, we have the spike. And now we've got ACE2 in here. This, the structure of spike bound to ACE2 was then solved within the next few months. You take the two proteins, you mix them, and you do cryo-EM. So here's ACE2, the red protein. And you can see it's interfacing uh, with ACE2 here. Um, now, if you look at this linear diagram, you can make corresponding colors. The blue is the N-terminal domain. Here's the receptor binding domain here. And then all these other structures down here are colored. And we'll get back to this uh, today in more detail because they're involved in uh, cell entry. The amount of information we have generated on SARS-CoV-2 is absolutely astounding. All right, the first question is viral receptors on the cell surface, A, can bind and directly to icosahedral virus capsid proteins. B, interact with glycoproteins of envelope viruses. C, can be carbohydrate or protein molecules. D, have cellular functions. E, all of the above. Now, someone asked, yes, I'm sorry, the Socrative.com student in the room number is virus. Someone asked, what is different between human and mouse ACE2? Not much. Not much at all. Um, in fact, you can make two amino acid changes in the viral spike, and it will now bind mouse ACE2. So only two amino acid changes in spike is enough to do that. And we'll talk about those because, you know, one of those changes is, is arising in these so-called variants of concern. Okay, let's see how we did here. All right, 94% of you got the right answer, all of the above. Everything here is right. They bind directly to icosahedral capsid proteins or they can interact with glycoproteins. They can be carbohydrate or they can be protein. And they do have cellular functions for sure. But they're all correct. All right, so we've talked about binding very briefly, but you get the picture of how that works. Let's talk about entry into cells. Uh, once the virus binds, what happens next? So cells, of course, have mechanisms for taking up materials from the extracellular fluid, and they're diagrammed here. Phagocytosis is used by some cells to take up big particles, like one to two microns, right? Like macrophages and dendritic cells and so forth. They can take up bacteria or big particles. And this is not what we're talking about today. We're talking about the next process, which is endocytosis by which cells take up small molecules. And this falls into two broad categories. First, macropinocytosis or pinocytosis, which has also been called cellular drinking. So these little red spheres are, are molecules uh, that, you know, ATP or water or whatever the cell needs. And the cell membrane is always ruffling constantly 
it ruffles, puts out these projections which wrap around and grab things and then they pull them inside in a vesicle, which is the endocytosis part. Some viruses actually get in that way, but most of them go in by what we call receptor-mediated endocytosis, where there are ligands on the cell surface, sorry, there are receptors on the cell surface for various ligands, and uh, that's how the cell takes things up. For example, iron is bound to a protein called ferritin in, in uh, the extracellular fluids, and there are ferritin receptors on the cell surface to pull the iron into the cell. So there are many of these pathways, and viruses get in via those pathways. And of course, these are normal cellular processes that have been overtaken by viruses. Uh, there's a specialized kind of uh, entry where we have these projections uh, on cells called philopodia, and they can capture some viruses, which can then enter the um, these philopodia. And these move around on the cell surface. And so sometimes you can see virus particles bound to them and it's called surfing. Kind of interesting. All right. Now, a key point here is that things don't just diffuse in the cell once they get in it. All right. When, when I show you pictures of cells, they're often empty. <laughs> and of course, that's not the case. But it would be too expensive to pay the artist to, to draw everything that's in the cytoplasm. But these pictures are actually pictures of what the cell cytoplasm looks like. Um, it's really crowded and it's broken up into panels because it would be too long for this slide. So here's the plasma membrane. This is not a forest of evergreens. <laughs> These are plasma membrane proteins, you know, the artist's rendition. And then the plasma membrane and then the actin microfilaments just beneath the plasma membrane. And then below we have microtubules going perpendicular to those. You can see some ribosomes, okay? Then moving further down, uh, we have some ves some secretory vesicles, like this is probably the ER down here, and there are proteins embedded in that. And we go further down, and then here is is a nuclear pore. So this, at the very bottom, is the nucleus. So these are things, molecules going through the nuclear pore. Uh, you know, the nucleus is regulated as far as what goes in and out through the nuclear pore. And here in the nucleus, which is in the final image, are histones wrapped around DNA. So virus particles do not simply diffuse. People have done the calculation and they said that if viruses had to move through the cytosol by diffusion, it would take days for them to get from the plasma membrane to the nucleus. Okay, so remember that. Cytoplasm is crowded. Movement of large protein complexes does not occur by diffusion. Let's, this is an overview of the different pathways viruses can take to get into cells. Uh, and uh, let's start here on the left. So many virus envelope viruses uh, can actually bind to surface receptors and fuse at the plasma membrane. So in order for the nucleic acid to get out of a particle, you have to have fusion of the virus and cell membranes, or in the case of pure protein viruses, the, the particle has to somehow come apart. And some viruses fuse right at the cell surface. And here we see the nucleocapsid actually binding uh, to microtubules. And as you know, there are motor proteins on microtubules that bring material from the plasma membrane to the nucleus and, and back. And you see this virus has grabbed a, uh, a motor protein and is moving to the nucleus and then it docks onto the nucleus and puts its DNA in. This, is, this happens to be a herpes virus, which fuses at the cell surface and puts its DNA in the nucleus. Uh, some viruses are taken up by endocytosis. So here we have an adenovirus taken up by endocytosis, and uh, eventually 
the, the that's an endosome vesicle, and eventually the capsid gets out of the endosome and is carried down uh, towards the nucleus by by uh, motors called dynein and kinesin. And again, the adenoid docks onto the pore and puts its DNA in the nucleus. Then we have some RNA viruses here. Here's a double-stranded RNA virus being taken up by endocytosis. And there are different flavors of endocytosis, like clathrin-dependent. Clathrin, dependent. clathrin uh, forms this, this red, these red triskelions. They form a coat around the vesicle as it comes in. There's also clathrin-independent endocytosis. There's caviolin-dependent, which is another protein that marks these vesicles. There's caviolin and clathrin-independent. The details are not so important for you. Just to understand that viruses get in by these pathways where the particles bind receptors. They're taken into endosomes. The endosomes move in the cell along microtubules via motor proteins. And then there's some trigger for the virus particle to get out of the uh, endosome and put its nucleic acid in the cytosol. And so you can go through this clathrin-dependent pathway, the independent pathway here, similar idea. The caviolin-dependent ones, this is SV40, are interesting because they target the ER. These uh, vesicles called caviolin-coated vesicles uh, end up fusing to the ER and putting the DNA in there. So let's take a look at how some of these work in some detail. Now, this whole process lends itself to animations. And so a number of scientific animation companies have made. This is a endosome moving on a microtubule by a motor protein. So that's what this walking thing is. Uh, this is, uh, uh, you know, dynenes or kinesins. They use energy. And that's an endosome being moved through the cell uh, toward, from the plasma membrane to the nucleus. So pretty cool. And if there's a virus particle in it, of course, virus particle is going, but normally the cell does this. Cell does this to move things into the, into the cell. Now, some viruses enter at the plasma membrane, as I have indicated already. So here's a paramyxovirus. It's an envelope negative stranded RNA virus. It's glycoproteins that engage receptors. And then the membrane of the virus and cell fuse right at the plasma membrane. And there the RNAs in the cytosol which is where it needs to be. And of course, that RNA also has proteins. It has nuclear protein. It has the RNA polymerase associated with it because it's a negative strand virus. Uh, what's the role of the lysosome? Ah, we will get to that. So most viruses want to get out of the endocytic pathway before the endosomes fuse with lysosomes because the lysosomes have degradative enzymes, right? Proteases and RNases and DNAs. Most viruses want to get out and they do. There are a few that stay in and actually use the degradation properties of the lysosome to take off their outer shell, and we'll see that today. But right now, we're fusing at the plasma membrane. How does this fuse? What's the trigger for fusion? Right, It has to happen on the cell that only has the receptor. Well, there are two examples shown here. One is the paramyxovirus at the top. We have uh, a, a virus particle diagrammed, and then there's a, a spike, which is the, the protein that will attach to the receptor. You can call that the attachment protein. And then here's the purple receptor on the cell surface. So the viral spike is attaching to the receptor. Then what happens? Well, next to the, the spike is another protein called the fusion protein, or F. And the fusion protein at its end terminus has a short sequence of very hydrophobic amino acids, which can get into a membrane, but it's buried on the virus particles so that the viruses don't just simply fuse with everything. But upon attachment, there's a conformational change transmitted to the fusion protein, which flips it out 
flips out the fusion peptide, which is shown here in red. That can now insert into the um, cell membrane, and then they're drawn together in a reaction that we'll look at for another virus. And when the membranes get right next to each other, you exclude the water and the membranes fuse. So that's the key to fusion, just getting the two bilators right up against each other. It's not easy because the, there's water in there and getting rid of that takes energy. So that's driven by these conformational changes. So you can have receptor mediated specificity as shown here. And the bottom is HIV-1 where you need two receptors. So the virus has this GP120 and it has the fusion protein called GP41. And again, the fusion peptide is hidden. Uh, GP120 uh, will bind CD4 first. And then when GP120 binds CD4, it exposes a binding site on GP124, uh, a second receptor, a chemokine receptor. And finally, when that happens, then you have a conformational change transmitted to the fusion peptide. This fusion peptide flips around, goes into the cell membrane, and then pulls them close together. And so I'm going to be showing you how the flipping happens and how the membranes are pulled together. There's some nice animations coming up of that. So two different triggers for fusion at the plasma membrane, um, both involving receptor virus protein interactions. So here's a movie of HIV uh, glycoprotein mediated fusion. So let me stop it. Otherwise it's going to go too fast before I say everything. So here is a view of the protein, the viral protein, the GP120, already, so it's in the viral membrane down here, and the, the fusion peptide has already been extended and inserted into the cell membrane, all right? And the, the extension happens upon receptor binding in, in this slide I showed you. But then uh, I want to show you in this movie how you bring the two membranes together. So that is actually what is animated here. So what is gonna happen is that this part of the protein is gonna line up against the other alpha helix and it's gonna assume alpha helix character and then there's gonna be an, a lovely, what we call hairpin. So we're moving back here now. We have the trimer. The top is inserted into the cell, the bottom is in the virus. And then this these long bits here that are not ordered are gonna fold up against the alpha helices, and that's what's bringing the two membranes together. Watch how that happens here. It's turning into an alpha helix. The membranes are coming together. These, these proteins tilt, and that brings the membranes right next to each other. So obviously the tilting involves energy. And then you have fusion of first uh, the, the inner membrane of the bilayer, right? That's called a hemifusion intermediate. So there were originally two bilayers. Now the, the inner one only is, is fused, but that's not good enough because the outer one has to fuse. And subsequently that happens as well. And that's shown here. And once the outer and inner are both fused, then you can have transfer of the nucleic acid uh, into the cell. Now, of course, in the case of HIV-1, it's the the capsid that goes in. So it's a pretty pretty big pore that opens up, not the nucleic acid. So that's how the, the two membranes are brought together. You have this folding of the glycoprotein refolding. First, it extends when the receptor engagement occurs, and then it refolds, which is called hairpinning, to bring the membranes together. We'll see another view of that uh, for influenza virus. Next question is, which of the following does not play a role in virus entry? 
clathrin-mediated endocytosis, fusion of viral and plasma membranes, diffusion of virus particles in the cytoplasm, microtubule-mediated transport, sialic acids, which does not play a role in virus entry. So someone wants to know about the movie. That's a, it's a graphically produced, it's all CGI, right? And um, they, you know, consult virologists to know what the intermediates are and then they do uh, the animation. You know, it's like how you make a movie now and except it's with a virus. And uh, there's a really cool animator, Janet Iwasa at the University of Utah. She, she does this for a living. She does animations of proteins and viruses. It's very cool. Um, most of you picked C, diffusion of virus particles certainly does not occur, but not all of you. Some of you said microtubule-mediated transport. That certainly does play a role, as does salic acids, which many viruses bind to. Let's look at influenza virus because this is the best studied uh, viral fusion protein and we can learn a lot more from it. So here's a virus particle that has bound to sialic acid and it's being taken up by endocytosis. The end goal here <clears throat> is gonna be the viral RNA. The eight segments are gonna come out of the particle. They're actually gonna go in the nucleus. So they have to get out of the particle. So here on the bottom are the molecular details. Here's the HA, it's a trimer. The globular head is in gray and it's bound to sialic acid. What happens is an endosome goes in the cell. So now this is gonna be uncoding within a cell as opposed to the surface is what we saw for HIV. As the endosome goes in, there are pumps, proton pumps in the membrane that pump protons in and it drops the pH of the endosome. So it goes from neutrality to, to six and five and a half as it gets closer to the nucleus. And with that low pH, that causes a conformational change in the HA. And so uh, here the, the, the heads have been, are moving away and then we remove them for clarity. You see the little red colored bits all the way down here, that's the fusion peptide, right? It's buried in the, in the neutral pH form of the HA. As the pH drops, this protein reorients the, and then the fusion peptides come up and you, you see these alpha helices in uh, cyan here. They're now sticking up <clears throat> and they've driven the fusion peptides into the cell membrane. It's all pH, low pH catalyzed. And then, so now you see the, the extended form of the HA and then they begin to hairpin. They make those alpha helices as we saw from the HIV animation and they begin to pull the membranes together and eventually they fuse so that the viral RNAs can get out. So you go from an extended conformation here, it's a hairpin that you've opened up and it goes back. It prefers to stay in the hairpin conformation. So this extended alpha helices, they don't like to stay. It's not energetically favorable to stay that way. So they, they fold back on each other and that pulls the membranes together. Hairpinning is what happens for HIV, but it is not low pH catalyzed, right? It is just catalyzed by receptor engagement. So these are the three states of the influenza virus HA shown as a monomer. This is the neutral pH form where the fusion peptide is down here and the salic acid receptor binding region is at the top. Uh, this uh, fusion peptide, by the way, is it needs to be, the protein needs to be cleaved by a protease. That's what this green guy is here to expose the N-terminus. In the HA as it's made in a cell, this is not cleaved. And this is the cleaved form. Without cleavage, this will not be able to undergo fusion. So that protease is actually a determinant of tropism of these viruses. And then finally, when you lower the pH, you get this extended conformation 
So the fusion peptide, which was originally down by the viral membrane, is now at the top here. And it's shoved into the cell membrane. Massive reorganization. You can see by the colors. Here's the cyan part, which is right here, right? Then you have this random structure in black. That becomes an alpha helix. And that thrusts the orange alpha helix up to which the fusion peptide is attached. And that goes up as well. And then once this happens, it then hairpins. It doesn't want to stay in this extended conformation. So the helices fold back on each other, form a hairpin, and that brings the two membranes together. That's how the fusion works. Now, it turns out many viruses do this. These are called class one fusion proteins. We've talked about HIV-1. We've talked about influenza virus. They're all perpendicular to the membrane and they appear as spikes. They're mostly alpha helical, as you can see, and they make trimers. Uh, other viruses, a paramyxovirus, Ebola virus, a retrovirus of mice, these are all class one uh, fusion proteins. So now we have an animation of influenza virus binding cell surface. It's being taken up now by uh, endocytosis. These are clathrin molecules coating the endosome. And now they did the right thing. They had it being pulled in on a microtubule by a red, very quickly moving motor. Well, the clathrin comes off. Inside, the, the pH is going down. It's changing the conformation of the HA, and now the, the membranes have fused, and these are the viral RNAs coming out and going into the cell nucleus. So we didn't see any details of fusion there, but this gives you an outside view uh, of what is going on. Does it have to do anything with pH when it goes back to that hairpin? No, no, the pH stays low. It's just energetically unfavorable, as you say. That's correct. Now, we've learned a lot about SARS-CoV-2 entry. And let me tell you what we know. So, again, here is the viral spike bound to ACE2. And this, um, this spike has a fusion protein. It's shown here in cyan, buried. And in the linear uh, illustration of the protein that's in cyan right there. And it also requires cleavage to expose it. Just like the flu HA, the, the fusion peptide has to be cleaved. So it's not cleaved when it's made so that it doesn't just randomly fuse with things. And that's why it's it's it has to be cleaved later by a protease. And so uh, this has to be cleaved by a protease called TMPRSS2 for SARS-CoV-2. This, this happens to be actually a cell surface protease. It's on a uh, it's on the plasma membrane bound to the membrane, and it's a protease. And when the virus attaches, the spike can be cleaved there, as you can see here. And that will allow this to reorient at low pH. And on the right is the structure of the extended conformation of the SARS-CoV-2 spike. It's all done in the last year. It's amazing. And there's so there's the extended alpha helix. And you can see the yellow part and the orange part were originally next to each other. Now they're extended. And that would bring the spike... The spike is not shown in this image, but it would be here uh, in cyan thrust up to the top. And again, that's low pH catalyzed, very much like uh, influenza virus. So the cleavage uh, is needed, protease cleavage is needed for fusion. You have to regulate fusion so it doesn't happen in the wrong place at the wrong time. There's another cleavage site on this uh, spike protein that's gotten a lot of attention. I just want to mention it to you, and it's shown here. So... The spike is divided roughly into S1 and S2 parts, and this cleavage here uh, separates the two. 
to expose the fusion protein. And that's done by TMPRSS2. But there's another cleavage site up further here at S1 slash S2. And that would be located about right there in the three-dimensional structure. And that is cleaved by proteases called furins. And that's the cleavage site for furins, R-R-A-R. -R -R. It's a multi-basic amino acid cleavage site. And what's very interesting is that SARS-CoV-2 has it, but SARS-CoV-1 does not. And the, the two bat coronaviruses, which are the closest to SARS-CoV-2 in, in sequence, do not have it either. So somehow this was acquired uh, in evolution. And this uh, is cleaved by um, furins, uh, probably during the assembly of the virus in the cell. It seems to be important. If you take away the furin cleavage site uh, from the spike, you can actually get virus that will reproduce. It doesn't reproduce as well. And in an animal model, it's less pathogenic. So it seems to be important. Exactly what it's doing is not clear, but one theory is that it might help expose uh, this area so that the second cleavage is more efficient. And so... That's one of the working ideas. But I just wanted to show you the fusion peptide, how it's thrust up the cleavage site for TMPRSS2, which is absolutely important. And in fact, antivirals that target this are um, being developed and also the furin cleavage site. Someone asked, how are the RNAs attracted to the nucleus once they leave the capsid? So they have on them nuclear localization signals. You know, they're, they're moving on microtubules and they get near the nucleus and then there's a machinery that brings material into the nucleus, which involves proteins binding cargo and the RNA of the virus is cargo. It's got a protein attached to it that will bring it in. So we also have class two fusion proteins and also class three, but I'm not gonna tell you about class three, but class two are quite interesting because they are quite different in structure. They're mostly beta sheet, right? So you look at this, here's a class two uh, fusion protein, beta sheets mostly. No, very little alpha helix. Uh, they make dimers instead of trimers and they go parallel to the membrane. That's the most important thing for you. But even though they're parallel to the membrane, and I showed you a picture of Zika virus last time. Again, you can see these uh, spike proteins are, are laying flat on the virus surface. Even though there's a membrane under this, they're lying flat on the surface. They can still reorient at low pH and that's how they work. So uh, again, we have the uh, spike protein. This is already the viruses in the membrane. The virus is down here. This is the endosome membrane at top. Uh, at low pH, it extends up. So the fusion peptide in red, in red here, is hidden. At low pH, they extend up. They undergo that conformational change. The fusion peptide inserts in the membrane. Then they hairpin because they don't want to stay in the extended conformation, bring the membranes together and a fusion pore occur. So very similar structure, uh, extended conformation, then hairpinning as well. And so these kinds of fusion proteins are in, in viruses like dengue virus and Zika virus and West Nile virus. And a couple of years ago, you know, when, when gametes fuse, sperm and egg, the membranes fuse, guess what? They use fusion proteins that look just like these. And we're not sure which came first, right? The, the cell fusion proteins or the virus ones. So here's an animation of dengue virus. Again, a virus with the class two fusion proteins going into an endosome. The pH is dropping. It's moving along a microtubule. 
You can see as a little transparent that the glycoproteins are going to stick up, reorient at the low pH, and that will put the fusion peptides uh, into the endosome membrane up here. And there, there they are closer up, fusion peptide going up. And then these proteins are going to hairpin. Um, the hairpin is, is, is not so visible, but you can see it's sort of here, these coils moving up along the, the proteins there, bringing the membranes together, uh, and eventually they're going to fuse. And then the viral RNA comes out uh, once that pore is made. And in this case, dengue virus, it's a plus-stranded RNA, and uh, it's popping right out there. There you go. And that's, of course, going to be translated right in the cytoplasm. That's all it needs to do is get into the cytoplasm, and it will make proteins there. In this case, is receptor still needed? I'm not sure for what aspect you're asking. But you can type it in, and I'll answer it. So Ebola virus entry illustrated a new paradigm a number of years ago. This is, a, you know, these filamentous particles. You name and pick. Bingo. <laughs> you're, you're jumping ahead. Uh, the Ebola viruses bind. You know, the cell surface receptor has never been identified. We think these are taken up by micropinocytosis, and maybe there are a variety of different binding proteins that are needed. But the real receptor is intracellular. These particles are taken up by endocytosis. Uh, as the endosome matures, uh, the glycoprotein is actually cleaved by cathepsin proteases in the endosome, removes the cap, exposes a binding site for uh, the receptor on NPC1. Neiman Pick, uh, it's a cholesterol transporter disease. Uh, NPC1 protein is the, is the name of the protein. Uh, Ebola virus binds to it, and that actually catalyzes fusion in the endosome. So it's it's an interesting endosomal fusion receptor. So here the, the fusion is regulated by having this receptor inside the endosome, and only when the virus hits that will it fuse instead of anywhere else because these NPC1s aren't on the cell surface. So people with uh, Neiman-Pick disease have cholesterol problems, uh, transporting problems, and they never get past 11, 12, 13 years of age, they usually die. Um, but if you take fibroblasts from them, they are resistant to Ebola virus infection because they lack NPC1. And that was one of the first experiments that was done to show this. And if you put the receptor back in on a plasmid, it restores susceptibility. Uh, the association with class two absolutely requires receptors. I don't think it was well illustrated in those diagrams, I agree with you. But yeah, the type two, the class two fusion proteins absolutely need to bind receptors um, in order to, to get in the cell and catalyze fusion. So the, the upshot of all of this is that fusion needs to be regulated, right? Because you think about it, virus particles moving around in the extracellular environment, they're bumping into all kinds of membranes on cells, pieces of membranes, and you don't want them to be fusing in the wrong place. So it's regulated, so it occurs in the right place. And I've told you a couple of ways it's regulated today. Uh, at the plasma membrane, where it occurs at neutral pH, right? The plasma membrane is not acidified. You need a second protein receptor interaction. You can have the paramyxovirus where the receptor, uh, the virus protein interacts with the receptor, and that 
triggers the F protein to come out, or in the case of HIV, you have two protein receptors, or you can have low pH fusion. And in that case, it's further regulated. You need proteolytic cleavage to activate the fusion uh, protein for cleavage, and that goes for both class one and, and class two. And, or you can have an endosomal fusion receptor, as is the case uh, with the Ebola viruses. So this is really a key point in my view that we have learned that you need to have uh, regulation of fusion. All right, our, our last question is viral fusion peptides are exposed for insertion into the host cell membrane when? Uh, a, the virus particle is near a cell. B, the virus particle is in the cytoplasm. C, trimers of the fusion peptides form. D, the endosome becomes acidified. Or E, the virus is docked on the nuclear pore. All right, let's see how we did here. So 50, only 57% of you got the right answer, 56%. Uh, it's D, the endosome becomes acidified. That is what exposes the fusion peptide. So if the particle is near a cell, that's not enough. Remember, it has to be some specificity. It has to be the right cell, and that's governed by receptor interaction. In the cytoplasm, that's too late already. Trimers form. Well, the virus particle has a trimer always, but the spike is usually hidden. Uh, the fusion peptide is usually hidden at the base of the trimer. So the trimer formation is not enough. So even though I showed you single proteins doing some of those reactions, it actually occurs as a trimer. And docking on the nuclear pore would also be uh, too late as well. So we, we talked about release of genomes from enveloped viruses. That's pretty straightforward. It involves membrane fusion. What about non-enveloped viruses? Let's look at a couple of examples. Adenovirus, it binds by the fiber to CAR receptor. It then has to bind a second receptor, which interacts with the hexon protein, in order to get into the endosome. Without that second interaction, it will not be endocytosed. As soon as it's endocytosed, the fibers fall off and the pH of the endosome drops. As the pH drops, uh, it causes changes uh, in the viral capsid and, and it begins to disassemble basically. And a protein is released called protein six, these little triangles here. They're normally hidden in the capsid, but on low pH they're released. And what they do is they poke holes in the endosome membrane. So now this partially disassembled capsid gets out, it locks onto microtubules, it's transported to the nuclear pore complex where it's further disassembled and the DNA comes out. And I'll show you how that works uh, in a moment. But just to show you, this is ra relatively rapid, you know, within 45 minutes, it goes from the cell surface to the nucleus. Here's an electron micrograph of an adenovirus on a, on a microtubule. And here are electron micrographs of adenoviruses sitting on top of nuclear pores, cytosol here, nucleus up there. So what actually causes the cell to bring the viral particles in via endocytosis? Well, endocytosis is a constitutive process. It's always happening to bring in ligands and viruses are just tapping into that. There is some evidence though that viral binding to receptors can also stimulate uh, endocytosis via signaling pathways. And we're gonna talk about some of those uh, in a couple of lectures. But remember, it's a constitutive process. So once adenovirus is docked at the nuclear pore, this is how it's taken apart. This is pretty cool. So remember, partially 
disassembled adenovirus comes out of the endosome. It hits uh, the motors. It goes down the microtubule, docks on the nucleus. And what we think happens is that it, the particle never lets go of the motor. And so the motor starts going the other way because that's what these motor proteins do. And meanwhile, the adenovirus is locked on pretty tightly onto the nuclear pore. And you can imagine there's a tug of war and that breaks open the particle. And there we have the DNA uh, which goes in. Now, the DNA has proteins on it, and those are recognized by the import machinery. Uh, and so those are brought into the cell, and then you have your broken capsid there. And you, there's really good evidence for this. I think it's pretty cool, including actually from work uh, done by the Valley Lab at Columbia. What about poliovirus? So now we have this really stable protein uh, particle that can survive passage through your stomach and into your intestine to initiate infection? How does it release RNA? Well, it turns out that all it takes is the receptor. And in experiments we did years ago, if you take poliovirus and add purified receptor, the RNA comes right out. So the receptor alone destabilizes the particle. And so here we see virus binds receptor. It's taken up by endocytosis. And then right away, the RNA comes out of the particle as the receptor destabilizes it. Now, what causes the receptor to do that? Or how does the RNA get out is really the question. Uh, and here, they've some work has been done structurally to study this. And it looks like a hole opens up uh, at the threefold axis of symmetry. You have this channel made. Here's the virus particle, and the, the endosome membrane would be here. And these have been structures solved by cryo-EM of uncoding viruses. So there's an idea that at one... Uh, five-fold, a three-fold axis, these channels form, they're receptor-induced, and the RNA comes out. Now, this is a really interesting problem because the RNA always comes out five prime end first. And how does it know if viruses can know anything? Where to bind? And it may not. It may bind randomly, and, and only when the five prime end is there does the infection work. And that may be in part why the particle to PFU ratio is so high for these viruses. Other viruses do interesting things. These are calici viruses, the ones that infect whales, that infect you and give you gastroenteritis. Upon receptor engagement, uh, the proteins in the particle, here's the native particle. Upon receptor engagement, they reorient to make a portal. There's only one that forms on the particle, not many. And how that forms at the right place, we don't understand yet. But that's how the RNA gets out. A real virus, double-shelled particle, right? It has an outer and an inner shell, double-stranded RNA in here. Now you're going to learn why it has two shells. Attachment to receptors, uptake by endocytosis. As the endosome acidifies, you have conformational changes in the protein. And then this virus stays in through the lysosome. And the lysosomal enzymes digest away the outer shell, the purple one here. And when that happens, you expose these turrets. So you can see here, the turret is protected. And then as it's digested the outer shell away, now you have this turret sticking out. Uh, this particle called an ISVP is hydrophobic. It actually can penetrate its way right out of the endosome into the cytosol. So now it's a core particle with just the turrets and the inner shell. And that's as far as it goes. The RNAs are made inside of it. And they come out in a process we'll see next time. But here, someone asked earlier today, 
you know, what's the relationship with the lysosome? So most virus particles get out before the lysosome by low pH catalyzed fusion, which happens earlier in the pathway. But here, rheoviruses stay in because they take advantage of the enzymes that are in the lysosome to remove that outer shell. So that's a summary of everything we've talked about. Entry at the plasma membrane, uh, entry by endocytosis, um, particles brought in. And remember, all movement by motor tubules, sometimes the particles uh, exit in the cytosol and the RNA is right there and ready to be uh, acted on next here. The real viruses I'm showing you, they stay in the lysosome and they get out later. For many DNA viruses, they have to dock on the nuclear pore uh, to get in. Now, let's just end up with a few thoughts on the nuclear pore. Uh, a number of viruses need to get uh, their nucleic acid in there, and we've touched on some of these today. We've, we've touched on influenza virus, where fusion of the viral and endosome membrane releases the uh, segmented RNPs, ribonucleoproteins, and they will fit in the nuclear pore. So the nuclear pore is a certain size, and the influenza virus RNAs can fit through it and they will just go in and they will be transported in because they are brought in by the transport machinery. Nothing fancy. But next we have herpes virus here. And we didn't talk about this much. We did say last time there's a portal at one of the fivefold axes of symmetry, right? And it turns out that the particle docks onto the nuclear pore with the portal right on it. And then the DNA comes out through the portal into the cytosol, into the nucleoplasm. So that's one of the functions of the portal. Now we talked today about adenovirus, how it docks on the nuclear pore, and then the action of the motor protein pulling away disassembles it and allows the DNA to get in. And then the last example, these are small single-stranded DNA-containing viruses, parvoviruses. Uh, they actually are small enough to get through the pore, but they don't. They bind to the pore, which apparently causes disruptions in the nuclear membrane through which they can then pass. So again, for some viruses, the cytosol is the destination. For others, it's the nucleus, and these are mechanisms by which uh, viruses get to where they need to go. One more story to tell you, which is very cool, and this is about how the gene encoding the receptor and polymorphism, that is uh, amino acid nucleotide chain differences from individual to individual, can control susceptibility. And this is for rhinoviruses, uh, there are three types of rhinoviruses, A, B, and C, and there are three different receptors that are engaged by these viruses. We have uh, ICAM-1 for uh, many serotypes, and this is an IG-like, multi-IG-like domain protein. For the uh, 10 serotypes, they use the low-density lipoprotein receptor, which we encountered uh, earlier is shown here. And by the way, this is uh, ICAM-1 binding uh, in the canyon of, uh, of these other serotypes as opposed to LDL on the surface. And then the rhinovirus Cs bind a protein called CDHR3, uh, which has this kind of repeat structure. So CDHR3 is, is polymorphic, and that is some people have uh, amino acid differences in the protein. A particular change at uh, position 529 to a tyrosine is actually linked to increased surface production of the receptor. And in kids with this change, it gives them an increased uh, risk of asthma, probably triggered by rhinovirus infection because they're more susceptible as a consequence of this polymorphism. And cells which have this change have tenfold more uh, receptor on the surface. They have more 
binding of virus and more yields. So in other words, human can have um, either C or Y at this position. And if you have Y, you're predisposed to more severe infections. Back in 2013, there was an outbreak of rhino C in chimpanzees in Uganda. These were in a preserve and they got the virus from people who were visiting the preserve. All of these chimps are homozygous for 529Y. None of them have C and they're, so they're particularly susceptible. And you may ask, why don't they have any Y? Well, chimps are not naturally infected. So there's never been any evolutionary pressure. There's never been any positive selection in chimps for 529C. Only humans have 529C because this virus has been with us for a long time. And in fact, if you look at the Neanderthal and Denisovan genomes, they have a Y, the susceptibility amino acid at 529. So this implies that rhinoviruses have only been circulating recently, you know, when Homo sapiens arose, perhaps, and the pressure selected for people who have Y. And, you know, there are still people, sorry, people that have C. There are still people with Y in the human population. It hasn't been purged yet, uh, but you have both. But interestingly, in species where the virus doesn't circulate and uh, apply pressure, you have the, the risk locus 529Y. So very cool. How are the chimps in Uganda doing? Well, there was this one outbreak. Um, unfortunately, some of them died. I think Betty here died of the rhinovirus C. And, you know, it passed and they, there hasn't been another uh, outbreak. But uh, they have other issues. They get killed by Ebola virus infections, which, which we'll talk about. That's how viruses get into cells. Next time, we're going to start talking about the processes that go on. And first, we'll talk about RNA-directed RNA synthesis. Thank you.